in a book called Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness by Jerry Cook and Stanley Baldwin. They tell of a pastor um, in the area that had an adulterous affair. About a year and a half after that, one of these two, uh, and, uh, and I don't know which of it is, the authors received a phone call from that pastor on a Sunday morning about 7.30 a.m., and that former pastor asked if his wife and he could come and worship at this pastor's church. And uh, the, the man receiving the call said, why, why would you even ask that question? Um, of course you can come. We would, we would not mind it. And this fallen pastor said, well, Remember, I'm, I'm divorced. I, I'm no longer with my wife. I'm remarried. Um, and I just want to make sure that you know that. And the pastor said, yes, we, we understand that. He said, well, we've been trying to find a church to, to worship at for the last eight months. And the last church that we visited, we were called out from the pulpit and told to leave. He said that they've been met at the door at churches by pastors who had heard that they may be coming and asked not to come in. In other situations, um, they, um, they were called in advance when a pastor found out they were thinking of coming. And, um, and so they knew that they were not welcome most places and felt they needed a call. So the author... Um, as he relates the story, he says that we extended the welcome to this man, to his family, to come and worship with us. And over the course of the next weeks and months, and even years, said that they shed many tears together. And that God healed this man and restored him to wholeness. I want to remind you of a statistic that I shared with you, and I've shared it several times in the last few weeks by Barna Research, um, that did a study of people that had not been in church in more than six months, not of any kind, whether they previously attended church or not, but they had not been in church in at least six months. And 72% of them said that they felt that the church is full of hypocrites. And I've shared with you that those 72% of those people, they are correct. The church is full of hypocrites. And in fact, I want to take it even further and say that the, the church should be filled with hypocrites. Um, the church should be filled, and we're all in some way, shape, or form. We have some form of hypocrisy in our lives, and therefore the church is and should be filled with hypocrites. And I want you, if, if that offends you, I'm, I apologize, but... but we, God has given us um, something. He's given us um, uh, something to use as, a, as really a, a, a map for our lives, and it's called the Bible. It's the Scripture, and it's full of hypocritical people with fallen character. And I want us to look at some of those, and we are in a series called That Church. And I believe that we should be that church where graceful comebacks are possible. And as I was preparing this message this week, um, the, it was, there was such an incredible 
I know this sounds stupid, and, and maybe you think every sermon should be this way, and every one is not. But I was so incredibly excited, and I believe that that excitement was because this is God's heart for the church. So, number one, I believe this church should be a place where the fallen can regain their footing. Have you ever heard the saying, oh, how the mighty have fallen? That's a, a statement that we hear um, in society. It's actually a scripture, and it's, um, it's from uh, David's life when um, King Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle by the Philistines. David said, oh, how the mighty have fallen. But it's something that people say because it implies the decline of a once great person. And we sort of have a fascination with this stuff. And uh, our humanity kind of enjoys it. Maybe it's a, a, a sports figure. Um, you know, um, when you hear, you know, that, that Tiger Woods takes a driver to his car as his wife pulls out of the driveway, you know, you're, you're kind of like, yeah, see, I told you. You know, we just have, there's this, there's this little bit of, something inside of us that sort of, you know, a politician's life is um, completely revealed by scandal. Um, maybe it is, uh, you know, a, a well-known religious figure and we find out something about them and we're like, see, I told you. There's just something about that that our humanity um, takes a little bit of of joy in something like that. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says this, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you, do, that you don't fall. And I want to start by looking at, at a man in Scripture that we, we, we know a great deal about and we hear a great deal about. In fact, he was, um, he was so well thought of that, that they, name, uh, they name churches after this guy, you know, if you go right here in the center of our community, one of the, the most beautiful buildings that you will see is St. Peter's, okay? Now, I've got news for you. Ain't nobody naming churches after Kevin, <laughs> okay? But if you see one, would you do me a favor and take a picture of it and text it to me because I would really like that a lot if I could see a, a church named after Kevin. Um, but he had a lot of, of up and down moments. And in, in the Gospels, we read about one of those moments and Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they say different things, you know. They, you know, some say that you're a prophet and you're a teacher and you're Elijah and, you know, you're this and you're that. And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And God says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. God has literally revealed this to you. And this truth is so powerful, Peter. I'm going to build my church on this truth. He doesn't say I'm going to build my, my church on you. But he says I'm going to build it on this truth, the truth that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on to say, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer and I'm going to be killed. And as you can imagine, the, the, the people around him, they really didn't like it. And Peter, open mouth, insert foot, as he so often did, he said, this will never happen. 
what Peter, without knowing it, was saying, Jesus, you will never die for my sins. Now, no one would ever say that. Now, looking at it on this side of it. But Peter was like, no, you, you can't die. You're the Messiah. You've got to reign. You've got to defeat the Romans. Well, Jesus said something to Peter that showed Peter exactly how serious this was. He said, get behind me, Satan. So Peter has gone from, you know what? God has revealed to you that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, to Peter, you're like Satan himself. And that's like in one conversation, okay? That's, a, that's an up and a down that happens uh, pretty quickly. Jesus goes on and he says, tonight, I'm, uh, you know, you guys, you guys are all going to fall away. You guys are all going to basically run away and hide. And Peter says, I'm going to, Jesus, I'm going to, I'll literally, I'll give my life. I'll lay my life down for you. And, uh, and then Jesus says, well, Peter, you know what? Here's the thing. You're actually going to deny me three times. And, and Peter it, you know, he can't, he can't believe this, uh, that this is going to happen. But then the scriptures tell us that, that a, a young lady approached Peter after Jesus had been arrested, and Peter was trying to kind of follow at a distance and observe what was happening. And a young lady asks him, hey, aren't, aren't you one of this guy's disciples? And Peter said, no, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he's approached by the next individual, and they say, aren't you? I could have swore I saw you with this guy. And, and it says that, that Peter, he takes an oath. So he, he promises that he's not that person. I don't know what he promised by, but, but you know, people, people promise according to all sorts of things that they feel may be powerful. If somebody says, I promise on a stack of Bibles, they're taking an oath, they're saying, I'm, I'm telling you the truth and I'm using the value of this thing to show you that I'm telling you the truth. And that's what Peter was doing. He was taking an oath and trying to prove uh, to somebody how serious he was by that thing. And then the third thing, the third time, he actually, uh, he actually, the Bible says, cursed and said, I don't know the man. Luke chapter 22, verses 61 and 62, it picks up from there. It says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. We don't think of Jesus being tortured and tried as being someplace where Peter would have had close access to be able to observe, but obviously they were close enough where Jesus could hear Peter and could tell when Peter had denied him the third time, and Jesus looks at him. It says, then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, just to give you an idea of the seriousness of Peter's actions, uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus says, but whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And Peter had disowned Jesus three times. He said, I don't know you. I promise by, on a stack of Bibles that I don't know who Jesus is. He brings down curses saying, I don't know who this is. Then after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples several times. 
And in Matthew, or excuse me, John 21, Jesus uh, prepares a shore lunch for the disciples while they're fishing. They come in off the boat, and, and uh, P- Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, do you truly love me? And Peter says, you know I do. And then a second time Jesus said, do you truly love me? And Peter says, you know that I do. Then let's pick it up in John 21, verse 17, the third time. He said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus forgives and restores Peter here at this moment. And within a matter of weeks, we get to Acts chapter 2, and Peter becomes the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit, the mouthpiece of the church, and 3,000 people get saved and are added to what is now called this thing, the church. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, uh, he says this about when someone fails, when someone, um, when someone who, who should know better and, and they fail, they falter, they sin. Here's what Paul says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this same way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So when a believer is found in sin, when a believer falls, they should be gently restored. And we have to admit, yes, they failed, yes, they've sinned, yes, they have been hypocritical, but the church must be that church where the fallen, where the sinful can be restored, where they can regain their footing. Number two, the church should be that church where the guilty find forgiveness. In John's gospel, uh, we read the story of the woman that's caught in adultery, And the Bible says that she's caught in the very act of adultery. Now, I have so many problems with this, you know, the the backstory on this. But but all we're going to look at is the fact that this woman was caught in the act. So there was no question about whether or not she was guilty. And the Bible says in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, in fact, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. The law says, stone her. She is guilty. She was caught red-handed in the act. There's no denying it. She is guilty. Jesus, what would you do? Man, what? What can Jesus say to something like that? What could he say? We read what he said in John chapter 8, the second half of verse 7. He said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Notice Jesus didn't say that she was guiltless. He didn't say that she had not committed sin. He didn't say that she didn't break the law. But he didn't say what they expected her to say or him to say, rather. And then he looks at the woman, because the accusers have now left all one by one, and he says to her, where are those that accuse you? And she responds in John chapter 8 and verse 11, 
No one, sir, she said. Well, neither then, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and live, leave your life of sin. She was guilty. She was caught dead to rights. She completely deserved the penalty of the law, which was death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That is the price for sin. She deserved it as well as do you and I. But before we get on the condemnation train, let's remember that every one of us in this place were at one time dead in our sins. That we follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that we are guilty of gratifying cravings of our sinful flesh, that we are deserving of God's wrath and God's punishment, Every single one of us. I ran into a a gentleman this summer, very unlikely experience, and within moments, and I hadn't seen him for a long time, and within moments he was telling me why he wasn't or had not been in church. And he said, I feel so condemned by people when I walk in church. I feel so condemned. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Friends, we're all guilty. When someone walks in and they feel condemned, let it not be condemned by a person. Let it not be condemned by someone else who has been in the faith longer. If they feel condemned, let it be that maybe their own conscience is is affecting them and bothering them and that the Holy Spirit is convicting them or drawing them to himself. But remembering that each of us is guilty. We should do as Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. We should be that church where the guilty find forgiveness. Absolutely caught in the act, red-handed guilty, and they find forgiveness in the church. And where those who feel condemned can learn that Scripture says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That their minds would be set free from that feeling of condemnation. And number three, we should be that church where the lost become found. Did you know that the lost were drawn to Jesus? They were were drawn to him. They wanted to be around him. Can you imagine that? The dregs of society, those that we consider to be the most sinful, the most heinous, that they would literally be drawn to Jesus. The Bible calls some of those people tax collectors. That does not refer to somebody that owns an H&R Block franchise. Okay. It's, I, I actually have a friend of mine who is a pastor that owns an H&R Block. Okay, That's not what we're talking about. 
the, the tax collectors were considered traitors. Imagine the, the most treacherous, traitorous act that you could imagine being committed against this country, and that's what they're thinking of, because those people worked for Rome. They collected not only enough for taxes, but they collected more for themselves so that they could get wealthy in the process. They were considered the scum of the earth to Jews. How about this one, prostitutes? Interesting individual to be, to be drawn, to, to, to gravitate toward Jesus. We would, we would say, man, I, whoo, <laughs> man, that, maybe that's a little much for me to even imagine. But these people were drawn to Jesus. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells the story of the lost sheep. He says, a man has a hundred sheep and one gets lost so he leaves the 99. Now, I know we read this and we're like, I, f- I feel like one of those 99 and I'm just neglected. The shepherd didn't leave them unprotected. He didn't leave them vulnerable, but he did leave them to go search for the one that was lost. He goes out and he searches for the one that is lost and he finds that one. And what does he do when he finds that one? He has a celebration. He has a party. Jesus tells several other stories in the same portion of Scripture where the same thing happens, where the lost thing that's found, there is a celebration. He tells about the prodigal son. This morning as I was just spending time with the Lord this morning before the services got started, I'm thinking about that dad who has got a son that is lost. And when the son comes home, what does he say? He says, kill the fatted calf. Bring the robe, bring the signet ring. Let's have a celebration because my son who was lost has now been found. You know, the Bible says that when one person comes to faith in Christ, that all of heaven rejoices. There's a celebration that happens when the lost becomes found. Years ago, there was a young man in my life. His name was Sean. Sean was the biggest drug dealer in his high school. It was a small high school out in the middle of nowhere, but he still had that, you know, that incredible accomplishment. And Sean got saved at a youth event. I had the pleasure of uh, being trapped into picking him up to take him to this event. And there was an altar call, and I turned a little bit to the side, and, and this guy is bawling. Now, this, okay, this guy is a headbanger. He's, he's into heavy metal. Metallica is his band. I just spent almost an hour in the car with him hearing how Metallica had been robbed at the Grammys. Okay, and he had details, none of which I cared about. And, and that night, he wept at the altar. I mean, wept. And he didn't know anybody in the room other than his brother who wasn't at the altar with him. And I, I, I'm so glad God brought a friend of mine uh, that, that was there that night, another youth pastor that had been saved out of a life of drugs and the occult. And that guy comes up to him at the altar and he looks at him and here's, here's this deep spiritual conversation that happens. He says, dude, you are out there, aren't you? 
And Sean said, yeah, I'm way out there. And he got saved out of that conversation. I didn't understand any of it, but God did a miracle in Sean's life, and Sean accepted Jesus. And that week, I did what any good youth pastor would do. I'm showing up at this kid's house, okay? I'm going to visit this kid. So he does what every kid is going to do. They're going to show you their room, okay? So I go to the room, and he's... I mean, he's proud, man. These are his digs. And, and he, he's like, oh, dude, I want to play this song for you. And he plays this song, and it talks about Moses in Egypt. And he's, he's like, this has got to be a Christian song, man. And he, he is headbanging through this whole song on a guitar with no strings and a canteen strap for a guitar strap. And he's got this big, long, curly head, and he is headbanging like this. And, I, and it, my neck just gets sore, and I get dizzy just doing that twice. And, and he is just, I mean, he's so excited. He's showing me his room, and on the back of his door, there's this big rock and roll poster and this naked woman on it. And, and all of my legalistic Christianity wanted to say, bro, you know, you're going to have to get rid of that poster if you're going to be a Christian. And I held my tongue. I didn't say anything. And the next morning, I got alone with God, and I said, God, by your Holy Spirit, will you let Sean know that that's not something that's good for him? And by 1.30 that afternoon, my phone rang at the office. This was before cell phones, if you can imagine that. And he said, you know, he said, I was sitting in my room today looking at the back of my door. I thought, I'll bet you were. And he said, something told me to take that down. There was some well-meaning people in the church that all of a sudden this former drug-dealing, uh, heavy metal, stink-like smoke, you know, uh, kid coming into the church and he was excited about Jesus. And there were other kids that were getting saved. And this was starting to like snowball, okay? Do you know what we call that? We call that revival when something like that happens. And all of a sudden, the youth group is starting to look pretty gnarly, okay? It was looking like some headbangers. And I had a well-meaning person in the church that said, I'm so glad my child is not old enough to go to youth group yet. I said, why is that? And they said, because I wouldn't let him go. Man, the power of God was moving in that place. And that parent was afraid to let their children be around it. Folks, I want you to know something. We need to celebrate. We need to celebrate when the lost become found. I want you to know that when the lost become found, it's messy. Because they don't change instantly. But the Holy Spirit can and does change them. We don't have to change them. God can do that. But it's messy. The church is not, is not called to be a museum. The church is called to be a hospital. Have you ever been in a hospital before? Now, if everything's going well, it's pretty clean. But the moment that there's trauma, it gets messy in a real big hurry, okay? 
I mean, it goes crazy. I have been in hospital rooms where they pulled off a bandage and there was blood spurting and arcing literally across the room. And immediately someone is there to clean it up. Man, that's a picture of the church. Should be anyway. That as someone comes in and finds God, they're bleeding all over the place. There's a mess everywhere and there ought to be well-meaning people that are serving and they're wiping up the mess. And you know what? That person's gonna get better and they're gonna grow and they're gonna change. It's gonna be messy. Here's what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter one, verse 13. He's talking about the mess. He said, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Can you imagine a church that Paul showed up at right after he got saved? They would be like, "Uh uh-uh, we ain't having any of this. This guy has killed Christians. You don't think that was messy? You don't think that there might have been some people that left the church over that one? I imagine there was. When people get saved, it's messy. When the lost become found, it's all not neat and tidy. They were afraid of him. It was messy, it was complicated. Friends, I want this, and I believe that God is calling us that this church would be that church where the lost become found. I want to remind us that at one time or another, we all fall. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Paul says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are a church full of hypocrites because we say and believe one thing and we've been guilty of doing another. That's the very definition of a hypocrite. I believe that God desires us to be a church where graceful comebacks are possible, where the lost can be found where those who have fallen can regain their footing. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this word that you have placed on my heart, and I pray today that it would be received with rejoicing. Father, I pray for the one that might be here today, and they have been waiting for such a message just like this. A message of hope, a message of forgiveness. But in their minds, the church has kind of been in the way of that because they have felt judgment and condemnation from the church rather than acceptance. And Lord, I know that as, as the church, as Christians, we, we often get hung up in this idea of acceptance because maybe that really is interpreted as approval. And, and Lord, I know that that's, that's not really the case. So forgive us when we get hung up on those things. And today I pray that, that 
you will speak to the one or the ones who may be in need of that forgiveness and of that grace. Before we close in prayer, I just want to ask you this question. Do you need that grace? Are you in need of that mercy, of that forgiveness of God today? If so, it doesn't matter what anybody else is or what anybody else thinks in this place. What matters is that it's available for you. And do you desire it? So as I close, I'm gonna, I want to pray, but before I do, if that's you, if you need that grace, if you need that forgiveness, I want to include you as I pray. Just slip your hand up and indicate to me personally as I'm, I'm looking around, hey, that's me, I, I need that. Just slip your hand up so I can see that that's you and I'll include you as I pray. Yes. Anybody else? You can put it down. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes. Anybody else? Yes. Thank you. I'd like us to to do something. I'd like us to pray together for the benefit of those that have raised their hands. I'm just going to ask you to repeat after me, and let's do it all together. Let's do it out loud so that they, they benefit and they feel our participation. Dear Lord Jesus, come on, let's pray it out loud together. Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you today, and I confess that I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, that I might receive forgiveness and eternal life. I accept that forgiveness, and I thank you. Come into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I thank you because all of heaven is rejoicing for that one that has said, God, I need you. For the loss that has been found, I thank you. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you today. In your name we pray.